was a lovely thought from that most magical of weavers, Annie Albers, who said of weaving that like any craft, it may end up producing useful objects or it may rise to the level of art. The boundary between craft and art is an interesting one because it's disputed territory and the border changes all the time. The traditional question is when does craft become art? But supposing we turn that around and ask what impact textiles have had on fine art? And what happens when famous artists like Picasso, Dufy, Miro and Chagall lend their art to textiles? Does this then become fine art or does it remain textile design? I love this question because they are both, but I would never call them art. I believe fabric design is an art in itself and that not everybody can do it. You can't lose sight of the fact that every fabric in the modern master line was made as a commodity. There's a lot of advertising or a lot of promotional that shows a piece of the fabric in a frame on the wall. You can do that, absolutely, but it was never the intention. The intention was for this product to be used. Artworks are not defined in relationship to use. They are standalone things that don't have to have a purpose. But the fabric was created as yard goods for a purpose. The art exists to express ideas. And the ideas that are being expressed by the Modern Master Project are definitely about taste and art and accessibility to the art but it's, but it's underscored entirely by consumerism. That's Lee Wishner, a design historian and an expert in American patterned fabrics. Welcome back to this edition of Haptic and Hughes' Tales of Textiles. It comes after a summer break, which we spent on the streets of Edinburgh and the beaches of northern Scotland, the results of which will turn up in podcasts to come. But this episode is about artists and textiles. My name is Jo Andrews. I'm a hand weaver interested in what cloth says about us and our societies. This podcast focuses on a particular period in America when a number of renowned artists became involved in textile design, resulting in a line of fabrics called Modern Master Prints. But it's also about a young, unknown fabric designer who was working at much the same time, often for the same companies, who took the discipline of textile design and pattern repetition and used it to change the face of late 20th century art. I think one of the strong points, one of the things that really stands out for me is this use of repetition. And I think... Andy Warhol, as a fine artist, exploits this idea of repetition very, very successfully. And these were things that he had used in his commercial illustrations and in his textiles. And that's the same idea that he explores with his silk screen. So if you look at 360 Maryland's, you can see that the image is degrading as he's printing more and more and this the ink runs out or there's a blotch. So you get this amazing sort of sense of movement through all of those Maryland's and you get that 
similar idea through his work as a textile designer. Dennis Northdraft is the head of exhibitions at the Fashion and Textile Museum in London, where an exhibition about Andy Warhol and his lost textile designs from the late 1950s and the very early 1960s have shed new light on his work as a fine artist. But this story starts in the late 1940s in America. The war is over and people's thoughts are turning to peace. Towards the end of World War II and in the, in the post-war period, the American art market in particular was sort of experiencing this incredible boom. Auction sales were starting to reach the record highs that we, well, maybe not the record highs we see today, but in their time, they were reaching all these highs. Galleries were popping up and gallery purchases were also surging. Uh, wartime shortages of consumer goods they had led to a surplus of money in the pockets of average Americans, or maybe not average, but upper middle class Americans. And that translated a lot into increased spending on luxury goods, including art. And so that if you backtrack even a little more, the public art programs of the 1930s in this country, um, they definitely increased the aesthetic awareness and appreciation for art. It was sort of demystified, like not only for just the rich people, you could even get art in department stores, eventually. There was also a strong demand for new clothes, something bright and different after the war years. On the parallel track, the fashion consumption in the United States was also on the upswing. And there was a really robust demand for resort and sportswear, junior apparel, what they called and we call still play clothes. And they just reflected a different modern casual lifestyle. And, you know, it's really interesting that just artists and galleries and, and textile companies started to all kind of put this together at the same time that they, they these, the trends and the entities work together to create a desire for this in the marketplace. There was a hunger too for things European. America had been cut off from European style and savoir-faire for many years. The American market was a strongly competitive one with lots of manufacturers all looking to differentiate themselves from the next. And to give themselves a bit of cachet and exclusivity. Some companies like Laverne Originals, Lowenstein and Sons and Milton Schiffer started asking artists for designs that could be sold as artists' prints. Often, but not always, these were American artists. Then in 1953, Daniel B. Fuller of Fuller Fabrics decided to create a line of artists' fabrics that featured the greatest names of the day. Fuller approached Picasso through a mutual friend. And, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays would think that no fine artist would, would want to work in a medium like fabric design. It's tainted with commerce. Though he was, he was hailed in his day, in that moment in time, they were reporting on him as the highest paid and most individualistic artist of his era. He'd been known to turn down invitations to do such projects, but because Fuller was able to guarantee a high level of fidelity to any artwork selected for the finished product, 
Picasso decided that he would accept the challenge. And I will say that that, <laughs> that opened the floodgates for Picasso and fabrics, but that's another, that's another st story altogether. <laughs> but yeah, so once, once he was on board, he just kind of reached out to his friends, Miro, Chagall, and Leger, and they were all enthusiastic about joining in on the project. There was, by this time, something of a history of artists crossing over to a textile format. The Ballet Russe had collaborated with many artists, including Picasso and Matisse. Dufy had had designs block printed as early as 1912. And after all, what is an artist's canvas but a piece of fabric? But this kind of mass-produced fabric was new, and maybe after the war, the artists needed the money. Maybe they fell under Picasso's spell, or maybe the ethos of the project just charmed them. They were famous and they were, I'm sure, comfortable as artists. The auction values never reflect what actually goes into an artist's pocket. So I'm sure that they were handsomely compensated for the project by Fuller, but I don't think they thought, I'll make a lot of money on this. They were definitely enthusiastic about it. And I think that they delighted in the idea of, of giving this democratic, affordable entree into art connoisseurship. I think that it was more than a novelty just to have the ability for somebody who admires their work, but can't afford a print or a painting even um, to, to wear their artwork and make life a museum without walls. That's a quote that always sticks with me that was part of the ethos of the whole project is that they're trying to erode the boundaries between art, art appreciation and access and, and the average person. Whatever it was, Mr. Fuller got his artists and his line of fabrics. I'm Daniel Fuller, president of Fuller Fabrics. In recent years, we have all been aware of the tremendous impact the work of modern artists has had on the design of everything we use. More than a year ago, we at Fuller's decided to go for ideas directly to the artists who have been sources of new design in our time. We chose Miro, Leger, Dufy, Chagall, and Picasso as five artists who have made outstanding individual contributions to the thinking of contemporary designers. And Fuller committed his company wholeheartedly, both to the artists and to the quality of the product, going to extraordinary lengths to get it right. Nothing quite like this had been seen before in American textile production. The artworks that were chosen, they were sort of selected to represent different milestones in each of the artists' careers. Fuller would have a design team aid the artists in selecting the right motifs that would translate into the repeat format, which was very, very compact because it's a roller printing process. The rollers themselves took more than a year to engrave, which is kind of astounding because, you know, Picasso would only sign on if he felt like you're going to reproduce my artwork with exactitude. It's true. The printing really captures like different textures and nuances of paints and glazes and 
pastels, even stained glass. Leger has a really famous mm. stained glass pattern. They're very faithful. And I've done a lot of the homework on matching the source material with the fabrics. And you can really see that they, they definitely hewed right to the source. Even when they strayed from the original colors of the pattern to create additional colorways, there was there's still something you can see. And it, it does have a quality that really does, the way that they capture the spirit of the artists really sets the collection apart from the imitators. Because believe me, there were plenty of Picasso-esque and Miro-esque patterns on the market. And a lot of people will send me something that's like, is this one of them? Is this one of them? And usually I have to say, I don't think so because the quality just doesn't look right. You know, if you actually looked at a Miro and looked at that, you'd say, eh, it's an imitator. But when you look at a Miro from this line, you, you definitely don't get the sense that it's an imitation. And I think that that also is a credit to the Fuller Fabric in-house design team because they had to collaborate. And can you imagine the pressure of like, collaborating with Picasso and being like, hi, do you like this? Is this okay? <laughs> um, do you approve this artwork? <laughs> and have him come back with a lot of, you know, notes. <laughs> so the artwork that the design team started with belonged to the artist, but the skill and the craft of turning that into a pattern that repeated successfully on a piece of fabric, that was down to the design team of fuller fabrics. They had to look at this artwork, whatever it was, and either they would pluck a single motif out of that artwork and recompose it into a textile repeat. Sometimes the entire artwork was the full motif and then they would have to get blended into some sort of a repeat. But basically what, <laughs> even though fuller fabrics promotions and selvages they center the artist as the creators. I think that the key element is that's missing is that to design the repeat. That is it. You need somebody to help you with that. If you don't think that way already and you're not trained to think like I need to crank out a continuous Picasso off of this wall, then you don't think that way. You need somebody who understands the mechanics of making that artwork translate and then not look clunky. Where do I shift this? How do I put this in a half drop? Well, you know, to make all those pieces come together as something that's actually successful. And most of them were very successful. One of the things I love about these textiles is you get this marriage of talent. There's not just the artist's vision and style. There's also the skill of the textile designers in pulling out the motifs, scaling them, designing the colors, and ensuring that everything is faithfully reproduced. And if they're successful, the hands are invisible. It, it takes an incredible amount of work, just from inspiration to printed finished product. There are so many people involved and so many steps and so many approvals and yeah, and right down to copywriting them. So it was a, a very uh, deliberate, effort that they obviously took the time to get 100% right. And so I can't imagine that many projects uh, being developed for that long without coming to market. It's really, it was a great moment in, in American fabric history. And it was a successful moment too. 
The fabrics with the name of the artist on the salvage went on sale in 1955 for between $1.49 and $1.98 a yard. In today's money, that's between $17 and $22 a yard. A second batch was commissioned, including the artists Paul Klee and Georges Braque, and in the end, there were over 60 different designs. They sold well. The fashion houses bought them and made up their own lines. Life magazine featured models wearing garments made by Claire McArdle from the fabrics, alongside the artists in their studios in France. People loved their Picasso dresses, their Miro resort wear. There were children's clothes, men's sportswear, Georges Braque covered sofas and Chagall drapes. Elsa Scaparelli even used the prints to design swimwear. They caught the mood of the day. You might not be able to get to Cannes, but you could have Raoul Duffy's subtle grey and olive green Mediterranean curtains with palm trees and pink clouds in your home. Fabrics was what was called a textile converter. The company made cloth and then sold it to department stores or fashion houses. It didn't sell directly to the public. Usually a company would advertise their fabrics to the fashion and fabric industry. But in this case, Daniel Fuller had other ideas. Yes, he wanted to sell this fabric he'd spent so much time and work on but he really did see these textiles as art, committed to his idea of these fabrics contributing to a museum without walls. Absolutely, and Fuller was very conscious about this. There was a traveling exhibition of these textiles and it hit several different institutions, but most notably the Brooklyn Museum, where there was a whole, almost an educational a display about how they were made, the process, some great photographs. Fuller was very conscious of promoting it within the museum context, like it very calculated. That's why several institutions have excellent collections of Fuller fabrics, actually. Wow. In the period, he decided that there should be these these pieces should be in museums. Fuller made donations to three institutions, each having to do with design history and education. The Cooper Hewitt Museum, the Berea College Art Gallery in Kentucky, of all places, and the Victoria and Albert Museum, which I know you're familiar with. They received 42 one-yard lengths in total at the request of the curator there, actually. And many of the designs are in two different colorways. And so they are actually represented in uh, at least the two premier design institutions in the world, as far as I'm concerned, the Cooper Hewitt and Victorian Albert. And now subsequently to that, I will say that uh, LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, also has several designs in their holdings, uh, which I helped place there when I worked for T.T. Halley at Cora Ginsburg. 70 years on, these prints are highly collectible. They sell for thousands of dollars and sometimes are offered for tens of thousands, far more than they retailed for when they were first made. 
and Lee believes that the designs have stood the test of time. I think they've dated incredibly well, actually. Um, sort of as if you just think about it as as well as the modern art from that period dates. It still, still looks fresh to us in many ways, but I do think that to say they're timeless is not the right approach. I think they're very much, they speak specifically to um, that, that post-war American moment. But I still think that because we have a very current appetite for the modern masters still in, in our own century, we still look to Picasso and Moreau and, and they still pay set in the market in ways that are surprising. When people discover them today, the fa I mean, the fabrics, the Fuller Fabrics project, I st they're always enthusiastic and appreciative and, and, and kind of, they always marvel that these big names would work in such a commercial medium. So that is still a, a constant. And they are still very, very sought after in the vintage community and, and definitely by museums. Lee says there's still a mystery out there. The paper designs, the letters, the rollers, engraved with the work of Picasso and the other artists. The artists' proofs, the production details are all lost. Fuller Fabrics was eventually bought by another company and no one has been able to find any trace of these items. So if one day you're clearing out an attic or a basement, or you see something at a yard sale that looks like a Miro or a Klee, or maybe a Braque or a Chagall, it might just be one. These artists were already well known when they lent their names and their designs to Fuller Fabrics to create the Modern Masters line. But at much the same time that the American public was enjoying the designs of these incredibly famous men, something in a sense much more interesting was happening under the radar. A young artist was using textiles and textile design in a very different way. He wasn't at the height of his career, a well-known name on the salvage who could sell yards and yards of fabric. He was at the start, and his understanding of the discipline of textile design was to have a huge impact, not just on his work, but on the global art world in the second half of the 20th century. For years, it's been well known that Andy Warhol started as a commercial designer, but it has been an incredible textile detective story to show that Warhol was also a prolific and talented fabric designer. The two sleuths who have dug out the wonderful tale of the lost textiles of Andy Warhol are Jeff Rayner and Richard Chamberlain. They'd seen lots of textiles by different artists, but they had a hunch that there might be more out there. Here's Richard. But there was one man conspicuous or one person conspicuous by their absence, and that was Warhol. And we had no idea if he had designed any textiles then. So we approached, well, firstly, the foundation, the Warhol Foundation, who put us immediately in contact with the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and a very helpful person to us. We met up with uh, Matt Werbeken, who's the chief archivist there. And 
he really couldn't tell us if Warhol had done a lot of war, uh, textile work at all. He was able to point us in the direction of a particular book, which was accompanied uh, an exhibition called The Warhol Look from the 90s, I think it is. Um, and in it are two images of dresses, dresses by uh, Stephen Bruce for Serendipity 3. And these were using Warhol textiles, silk textiles. So that's where it began, really. So now they knew there were at least some Warhol textiles. Richard and Jeff, who are long-term researchers and acquirers of art textiles for museums and collectors, started the hunt for more. So we're talking about online auctions, we're talking about vintage clothing stores, etc., etc. But we are talking, you know, Canada, uh, New Mexico, wherever. But it did involve a real labour of love, a dedication, really. So a regular daily sweep or, or um, survey of what had come up on the internet in all of those type of venues uh, overnight. And of course, America gets online later than we do. So we'd have to look you know, later at night as well. And it did start to bear some potential fruit. We found a few textiles, a handful of textiles, in fact, one or two originally over a number of years. But I think the first one that really cemented things was the ice cream desserts one. So yeah, it just, it just grew. And of course, the internet became the primary source of finding out further information, possible links to other people that might have been involved in the textile world, companies. But of course, American companies, lots of New York textile firms, a lot of their archives have been junked. They've been amalgamated with other firms. They've been taken over or they just went bust in the 70s. So I'm sure there's a lot more work to be done stateside, but we, we were able to pull together what we could uh, and start this sort of process of, of finding and, and authenticating textiles by Warhol. This was long, slow work, and they were very much out on their own. No one else had heard of Warhol textiles. And unlike the modern master's fabrics, these didn't come with Andy Warhol's name helpfully inscribed on the selvage. But what these textiles do have is a look. In particular, Warhol used a broken or blotted line to outline the motifs on the fabric. Here's Jeff. He used that extensively. Um, it's almost exclusively his. And he drew, drew um, on that for all his graphic work. He d did do some uh, other work, you know, with other stuff, but mostly the broken graphic line is what he used to describe the work he was doing. It's a line which is broken deliberately. It's, it's artificially created. He does drawing and then a piece of paper is pushed onto it. And when you take it off, you've got a broken line of the drawing that originally was just a plain simple drawing, but now it's the broken line. And it looks like a printed work. And he used that extensively on all his work at that time. So sitting in London and scouring the world, Jeff and Richard got their eye in and learnt to recognise Andy Warhol's designs. 
Christie's, Sotheby's, Bonhams, etc., etc., have sold hundreds and hundreds of drawings and preparatory works for various advertising, etc. So there's a great pool of work to draw on, literally, to, to look at. And so one has these sort of traits in his work, subject matter, and of course the colouring as well. They're all things that we used as a template, really, to try and locate textiles that were in that style. And once once you get your eye in on that, maybe after a couple of years, they kind of jump out at you. They do have a very distinct style. Uh, he's working in that novelty or conversational print industry, really. But his designs have that certain something. And I think that's why they appeal greatly and why he produced or was able to sell quite a few of them because they were exactly what the converters in New York were looking for for their summer prints for dresses. These designs have a joy and a vivacity all of their own. I was blown away by the collection Richard and Jeff have amassed over 13 years of work when I saw them at the Fashion and Textile Museum in London. There are ice cream cones on fabric in pinks, peaches and pistachios. Orange and green butterflies winging their way across pretty dresses. Broomsticks flying around skirts. Quirky pink and purple bugs pinned to full dresses. Material printed with hats, socks or buttons. There's even a dress fabric patterned very successfully with pink, purple and scarlet pretzels. This seems very clearly where Warhol learnt the art of repetition and played with the significance of everyday objects, themes that were to dominate his life as a fine artist. Here's Richard. Well, he was dealing every day with depicting everyday objects, you know, household mass-produced objects, in his graphic work for journals, magazines, etc., so he's taking those really from the, the printed page or the drawn page, and he's putting them into repeats. Those repeats are particularly prescient of the soup cans and the Coke bottle paintings of 1962. So he's got almost a one-up from other pop artists because he is so directly involved with consumerism, advertising, etc., etc. It's almost... Uh, a sort of seamless switch to what he's doing. And textile design, as we've said, is something that didn't have a brief or an agenda. So he was able to play with pattern design, putting things into repeat, repeating motifs, all went to inform his pop art. It's one thing to learn to recognise what you believe to be a fabric designed by Andy Warhol, but it's quite another to prove it. Jeff and Richard have managed to do that through assiduous work on a paper trail. They were lucky in that they could talk to a number of people who were still alive, who'd worked with Warhol directly on his fabric designs. And then the chief archivist at the Warhol Foundation, Matt Werbeken, became enthusiastic about their project. And he was able to point us into directions of where we should look for like-minded artworks, design, etc, etc. And by then he had also investigated the collections there and they had found that they had 
five floral textiles, five floral silks, which we actually photographed for our book, Artist Textiles. And subsequently, in one of these so-called time capsules, which are actually those sort of file boxes, data boxes, Warhol used to just fill and dump with all associated flotsam and jetsam of his life. And I think there are over 500 of these, something like that. And they're all in the Warhol Museum. So there's things in ones from the later 70s and early 80s that have things from the 50s in. Anyway, they found another couple of textiles, one of the uh, bright butterfly textiles and another one of the Balmoral loom florals. So he was kind of energised by the whole thing and supported us, really. Then there were papers showing that Warhol had worked for a particular textile company, although not specifically which designs he'd worked on. And slowly, bit by bit, each piece was documented. Everything for the publication of the book had to be put to the Warhol Foundation via DAX. And we had to present what we had in the book as our evidence, really, plus other things that we have that aren't in the book. And from that point of view, everything has been accepted. I haven't seen any negative reviews yet either a book or an exhibition. In fact, generally, people seem to think that it's, it's marvellous to see that facet of his work brought together and the joy and the sort of colour that it brings into people's lives, particularly as, as we've mentioned before, the fact that, you know, a month ago particularly, it was cold, grey London, and then you come in and you see all this marvellous colour, this sort of saturated colour. So... So far, everyone is with us. These fabrics are playful and interesting. And just as the modern master's fabrics caught the post-war American mood, these trap an essence of the late 50s and the very early 60s. The Beatles and rock and roll is still in the future. But there's something about these textiles that tell us just the faintest whisper that it's coming. In Richard and Jeff's book called Warhol, The Textiles, there's a black and white picture of Janis Joplin with friends and family from around 1960, long before she became Janis Joplin. One of her friends is wearing a skirt in Warhol's very cool, happy day print of butterflies and bugs. But I think the thing that I really like about it is it's just, for me, Warhol's early illustrations, that commercial art period, has such a lovely sense of spontaneity, of a sense of humor, of things that I think maybe didn't necessarily translate all the way through his fine art career. So some really lovely things. And I've always loved Andy Warhol's early illustrations. So it was really nice to see them in a context that I hadn't associated them with, which was textiles and then fashion. Dennis Nothdraft has curated an exhibition of Andy Warhol's textiles at the Museum of Fashion and Textiles in London. But they haven't yet been seen in the US. And as a result, this story remains largely unknown there, which is a pity. In time, I'm sure, that an American gallery or museum will get around to honouring 
the textile work of one of its greatest artists. But one obstacle and one reason that these textiles were lost was the attitude of Warhol himself. Here's Jeff. In 1970, a bookshop in New York was going to, well, they, they held an exhibition of the 40s and 50s work by Warhol, and he didn't want to know about it. He just said it didn't happen. It was unimportant. It was just something I did. And that was it, as far as he was concerned. It wasn't important to him. What was important was his fine art. I think by, yes, by that time, he really was focusing on fine art and anything else from that period, 62, three uh, backwards, was, was a hindrance and an embarrassment, which is crazy because it's such a, a rich and fantastic period in his work. It's very different to the fine art, but it goes to inform certainly directly informed his fine art. Dennis says part of the reason for this is the pedestal on which fine art has been placed. I feel that Andy Warhol makes a clean kind of move into fine art. Like there's that period where we have a transition and then when he fully commits to fine art, he becomes a fine artist and he closes the very successful studio, who's a very successful commercial artist and graphic designer but he closes that and he becomes a fine artist and i think it's something that the art world is always done there's a hierarchy and fine arts painting sculpture are high and the applied arts decorative arts textiles or commercial arts are low and that has always existed i think it's not quite the same today but definitely in warhol's time there is a hierarchy and you're a famous fine artist you're not a commercial illustrator so you can kind of understand why he made that shift and then he became a fine artist and yes says dennis this was partly to do with good old-fashioned sexism and I think it's hierarchical and I think it's sexist, if like, you know, can say that. I think it's it's textiles is a domestic sphere. It's it's what women do. And I think historically art history has been dictated by males. And the fine artist is the male, and you know, applied arts, decorative arts, textiles or embroidery or knitting, those types of things are domestic arts and are second class citizens in the art world. And that has always been the case, and that's changing. There's that amazing book that's just come out about a history of art without men. And it's fantastic. And there are so many women who just don't get a look in, and they haven't historically because it's been, you know, run by men. <laughs> <laughs> That's my take on it anyway. Dennis is right. It is changing. And that is one result of women having allowed a voice in the world of art. But it's vital for me that textiles aren't seen just as second-rate art. They're something different, and they give you something a painting can't. Here's Lee Wishner again. And there is something that a fabric can do that a painting can't do, and that's move. Whether it's in a dress and you see it in motion, motion is a changer in textiles, and that doesn't change with a painting. I mean, you can stand on one side or you can stand on the other and look at it from different, like, raking side views. It's not built to move. Fabrics are. Even something as simple as taking a panel of fabric and letting it fold in a ripple changes the pattern. And it, so it changes the way something looks, it changes your appreciation for it and your interaction with it. 
And in that way, I believe that textiles have greater powers than paintings. I think certain colors just also glow more from a fabric, uh, depending on the substrate that you're using. You know, if you're using a sateen or a synthetic, there's different lustres and properties inherent in the fabrics that can really impart a different level of beauty than just your average painting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue. And a huge thank you to Richard and Jeff for their dogged research over 13 years to rescue the wonderful Andy Warhol textiles. Their book is on sale in the Haptic and Hue bookshop via our website at www.hapticandhue.com. Thank you too to Dennis Nothroff for recognising the joy in these fabrics and creating space for the exhibition. And a big thank you too to Lee Wishner for her role in ensuring the Modern Masters textiles continue to be seen and valued by us all. If you'd like to know more about the speakers or see photographs of the fabrics we've talked about, please have a look at the page for this podcast at www.hapticandhue.com. Listen, it's episode number 42. Haptic and Hue is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me a Coffee or by becoming a member of Friends of Haptic and Hue. This keeps the podcast independent and free from advertising and sponsorship. It also brings you extra content every month with a separate podcast called Travels with Textiles, hosted by Bill Taylor and me. This episode of Haptic and Hue was about artists and textiles in America. But a very similar movement was going on in the UK at the same time. If you'd like to hear more, there's an interview about this with Ashley Gray of Gray MCA at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash friends. It's called Artists Textiles of the 20th Century. Meanwhile, we'll be back on the first Thursday of next month with another textile tale. It focuses on a recycling revolution on one of London's most famous streets, Savile Row where some of the world's finest men's suits are made. Join us then to find out what's happening in the next episode of Haptic and Hue.